somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 32 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave us some feedback. Artworks by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from the album Out of the Blue and Into the Amazon by Emily Burridge, and that's available from magnitude.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Calicut's Gift by Seymour Jacklin When the ground shook and the sky darkened, Eniha would stay indoors and no one would be able to coax her out into the murky daylight. It's only your father, Calicut, clearing his throat, Appa would say to her. The adults were used to the volcano's outbursts. Anyone growing up in the village would have felt the ground flowing under their feet and seen the sky choked with red dust four or five times by the time they came of age. The rumbling and belching would last for an hour or two at a time and return unpredictably for a couple of days. And then there would be silence for a few years. During eruptions, the villagers went on with their lives, patiently swept their paths clear of soot and ash, and gratefully ploughed it into their gardens. Even when he sneezes, Calicut blesses us, said Appa, for he believed with everyone else that the fertility of the soil was improved by the ash. Appa had also told her that Calicut was the father of their island and those that surrounded it. The old mountain had coughed them up many generations ago small comfort. In her nightmares, Aniha saw the volcano coughing up another litter of huge islands that would fall from the sky and end all their lives. On this day, as the soils of the island seemed to take on the unstable qualities of the ocean that surrounded it, and the sky was jaundiced with ash, Aniha had balled herself up with her back against the wall of the hut and her knees clasped to her chin. She felt sure that on this day, with each fit, the mountain sneezes were more intense and prolonged. The ground thrummed in waves like a plucked string. She pushed her face against her knees and covered her ears, expecting at any moment that the hut would be crushed by an island falling from the sky. The roaring and shaking reached a climax and died away, but lasted just long enough for its absence to feel unfamiliar when silence fell again. Then... Breaking in upon the hush, Aniha heard the sound of laughter from outside the hut. Many voices. What was so funny? Being excluded from a joke is almost as horrible as having an island fall on your head. Aniha wanted to run outside and see what the people were laughing at. She stood up and peered out of the doorway. 
She could only see a few metres in the suspended dust, but the laughter was coming from the direction of the beach. She covered her head with her arms and ran towards the sound. Down on the beach, a circle of adults and children had formed around two small boys who were wrestling in the sand. Aniha instantly recognised one of them as her younger brother, Kofat. Everyone was laughing as the two boys grabbed and struggled like a terrier and a rabbit. It didn't look like a fair fight. As she watched, the other boy grabbed Kofat's ankle as he tried to crawl away. Kofat was knocked off his knees and fell with his face in the sand. He tried to turn over, but his tormentor knelt on the back of his legs, pinning him helpless. And he looked back to the audience for applause. Then he opened his mouth, put out his tongue, and bit it, showing his teeth in the sign of a victor. The little crowd cheered. A panduada, they shouted. Well done. Adepekasauk. Praise to the victor. Aniha screamed. In that moment the sky seemed to glower, not with the benevolent dust of Calicut, but with the singularity of her rage. Kofat was not moving. He'd not even turned his face away from the sand. At the end of the darkening tunnel of her vision, framed by the beach and sky, the other boy sat on him as if he was a beached canoe, waving his arms in the air. Aniha broke from the crowd of spectators and ran to the boy, still screaming. Before she fell upon the victor like a hail of ash, her eyes met his, wide and white in a look of surprise, before he snapped his head to one side to avoid her opening strike. With animal swiftness, she pinned his arms to his body in an encircling grasp, and as she followed him down into the sand with the force of her descent, she stifled her own scream by biting hard into his shoulder. Ah! Ah! He panted, kicking spasmodically, trying to pull himself away from her. Aniha felt her neck stiffen and her teeth lock like a lioness's upon her prey. His skin tasted salty, and she could feel the bones sliding underneath it as he twisted and strained to wrench himself free. She held on, and on, until one of Apa's strong hands wrapped themselves in her hair and pulled her off. Putting his other arm around and under her arms, he carried her a few paces and dropped her in the sand. Patetzel, he said. It's over. Anaptet. Stay there and he turned his back on her, a solemn silhouette towering between her and the two bodies in the sand. Kofat's attacker was lying still, curled up on his side and whimpering. Kofat had still not moved. Aniha sat up and watched Apa, who bent over and began to draw a line in the sand, walking backwards in a wide circle around the two boys. As he came back round to complete the circle, he looked at her again and said, Nararaldi, forbidden. Aniha nodded and lowered her head. Several paces away, the clump of onlookers stood in silence. Aniha's mother had stepped out from them towards the children and stood alone in front of them with her eyes fixed on the immobile Kofat. For the moment, Calicut was silent, as if it too had heard Apa's command. Everyone respected Appa when he spoke, and was watching to see what he would do. Aniha was old enough to know a little of what was going through their minds. The people had a saying, You must quickly remove the Purukit's spines. The sweet flesh of the Purukit 
formed a staple of their diet, but if you did not remove his spines within minutes of pulling him from the ocean, their poison would dissipate into the fish's body and make it deadly to eat. It had become a byword for the ever-present need to separate evil from good when they were too closely mixed. Apa was probably the only man in the village who was up to the task of separating the spines from the innocence of a play fight and the noble attributes of valour and courage that they had just witnessed. Much would also revolve around whether any blood had been shed. Aniha wiped her mouth, and to her relief there was no sign of blood, although she could still taste the salt on her teeth. Apa was kneeling next to Kofat. He took the boy's shoulders and gently lifted the upper part of his body from the sand, stroking his hair. Aniha glimpsed her brother's face. His eyes were moving, and he blinked hard. Silent tears tracked down through the caked sand on his cheeks. Apa was looking at his face carefully and saying something to him. Aniha's mother stepped forward, but Apa gestured to the line in the sand, and she stopped. As Apa pulled Kofat upright to kneel next to him, the villagers cheered again, A Pandwada! At the sound of it, the other boy rolled over and sat up, holding his shoulder. Apa stood up, strode over to him, and bowed down to inspect the shoulder. It was not light enough to see, but Aniha could picture the bruising ring of teeth marks that would mark him for a couple of weeks. Apa cupped the back of the boy's head in one of his gigantic hands. Holding his face close, he spoke quietly. You and Kofat are one, he said. Then waving his other hand in a wide arc, he said, By this circle, but do not step out of it until you are one, like this circle. And he traced a tiny ring of Aniha's teeth marks on his shoulder. There was another saying of the people by which they reprimanded those who refused to work together with others. He's all jawbone and no skull, they would say. Appa continued. Generosity is the victor's only prerogative, he said. That is what it means when you put out your tongue. Appa's shadow fell again on Aniha. You could have drawn blood, he said sternly. Aniha met his gaze and he broke into a smile. How do you know he won't be your husband one day? He chuckled. But as he said it, he placed his fist under his chin as the elders did when they spoke a prophecy, and Aniha knew it would be so. And as he stood in front of her, she felt him radiating towards her like the warmth of a rock in the sun. Behind him, the two boys had stood up and were touching their foreheads together gravely. Then they did something she or Appa had never seen before. Putting their arms over each other's shoulders, they walked, keeping their heads touching. Apa nodded as they stepped out of the circle together and came up to him and Aniha, still together, joined at the forehead. All of you must wash in the sea, Apa declared, and let that be the end of it. But if she is brave, this granddaughter of mine must go in first, until her feet cannot find the bottom. Aniha was crying. Apa had not used the word for the Purukik's poison. In accordance with superstition, it was never mentioned by name, but they all knew that this symbolic washing in the sea was an acknowledgement that what had happened between them had been laced with the deadly attributes that it represented. It was too much for Aniha. 
She knew she'd rightly done what any sister should do, and yet still, this poison. It wasn't fair. Even the Purikit needed his spines for protection, to keep a little death in him in order to fight a greater one. What could the sea do anyway? It was just the way things would always be. For Arpert seemed so simple. That terrifying volcano was just a beneficent father, and if you wanted to be a pure person, you just had to walk into the sea until your feet couldn't find the bottom. Go, said Arpa. Aniha walked ahead of the two boys, down towards the breakers, and they tumbled up towards her then fell and retired as if doing her homage yet entreating her to follow them. As she put one foot in front of the other, it seemed as if the breathing rhythm of the breakers fell in with her steps, and she became conscious quite suddenly that she was walking into a world of a thousand lines, stretched like gossamer cobwebs on dewy grass marching towards her, breaking and reforming. She felt as if the line of the horizon drew a perfect parallel with her shoulders, that she somehow embodied the geometry of the land, the water and the sky. There was nothing but a great singularity of which she was the ruler and compass. Usually the ocean made her feel utterly small, but now it gave her of its own infinity even as it lapped and fawned at her ankles. She walked in to her knees, then to her waist, hardly slowing as the water broke on her. She leant into the grey waves and threw them back with her chest. When it reached her shoulders, she lost her footing, and the shape of Calicut on the horizon disappeared for a moment behind the swell. Behind her, one of the boys cried out, and she heard Appa's voice, as if it were the voice of her own thoughts. "'Trust your weight to the water!' If you don't trust, you won't be cleansed. The next rise of the swell lifted her feet from the bottom, and oh, the water caught her and wrapped her like a living garment. She struck forward with her arms, pulling herself forward. The ones who tell this story praise her courage for its own sake, as if to swim the strait of Calicut were enough of a reason in itself for her to press on. Oh, hear the story of how brave Aniha crossed to Calicut. But in her sinews, at that moment she swam, not to show her strength or to conquer the straits, but to leave the shore and the people and the girl who had cowered in the hut, and to outswim the Purukik's shadow, and to hide herself in the ocean where she would always be pure. They praise her swiftness, her strength, and tell how she beat back the grey waves, how she kicked at the foam, but they do not know that she pulled every wave to her breast longing that it would pass through her, cleanse her of all that was not water, or that her body would be moulded between the squamous undulations and take the form of a fish. The rhythm of the waves and her arms drowned all sense of passing time, until she swam under the shadow of Calicut. The waters darkened and became warmer, and as her shoulders rose with every stroke of her arms, they became speckled with ash, then rinsed clean again as they fell. Flecks of grey and black became stuck in her hair and aged her by sixty years. Now the dark rocks of Calicut's shore took shape as she neared them, jutting, twisted forms of lava, petrified where the shoulders of the mountain met the water. 
Aniha felt her heart beating like solstice drums, like marching warriors. She slowed down and swam quietly towards the shore, not wanting to break the sound of lapping water with anything that might betray her as human. As she swam within a stone's throw of the shore, she breathed in little sips of air as if she tasted something forbidden. The waves seemed to carry her closer and then drag her away, but when at last her hands and feet came against the bolded fringe of the volcano, she'd begun to resemble a true daughter of Calicut, baptised in his ash and water, gasping the sulphurous air of his breath. When she stood, the water came to her waist. Her toes splayed like roots in the sharp pebbles under her feet. It was then that the Purikit struck her, all she knew of it was a sudden and excruciating puncture of pain just behind her right ankle and a dart of orange moving away from her under the water like a sliver of fire. The rocks threw back the long exhalation of her agony. <sighs> Immediately, the venom began to spread, as if her foot was being held over a slow fire. The pain of the Purikit sting would pulse in a relentless crescendo through a human body until every nerve and sinew was drawn tight to the point of paralysis. Aniha knew that of the few who were known to have been struck by it, all had tried to end their own lives while they could still move, rather than wait for the poison to do it. The breaths remaining to her were numbered, fewer than a hundred. She slumped down on her hands and knees and crawled out of the water. The rocks of Calicut were hot to touch and would have been unbearable if the greater pain of her injury had not already filled her to capacity. She stayed on her hands and knees and looked for a way to die quickly. She saw no cliff to throw herself from and no boulder big and unbalanced enough to pull on top of her but she noticed a broad blade of broken obsidian jutting out of the ground a little way up the slope. It was no bigger than her head, but it presented a knife edge and a point that might offer some hope. As she crawled towards it, she became aware of two kinds of heat that seemed to be crashing together in a battle over her body. The fire of the Purikit sting seemed to be falling back by degrees to the heat of Calicut stones, as if scalding water was being thrown at flames. But Calicut was making quicker work of her body, as the skin began to flay from her hands and legs where they touched the mountain, and the torrid air stole the little breath remaining to her. And suddenly, Aniha had the sensation of her essential self pulling inwards from the walls of her body like a seed shriveling inside its husk, detaching from the sensation of pain, contracting towards the point of her last act of will until it was bunched up like a leopard preparing to make a final leap. Her last choice would be to give herself completely to the mountain's burning. At least Calicut's fire would take her, and not the poison of Purakit. She willed herself prostrate onto the blistering ground, and as she flattened her body, her forehead came to rest, touching upon the cool, flat face of the obsidian shard. That is the stone which now lies at the centre of the village. They call it Kalakut Dudatnat, Kalakut's gift, 
and the one who bore it back to them through the waves and laid it at the feet of Appa is Aniha, Kulagna Bezari, beloved of the mountain. For when she touched it, it pulled the burning out of her like a warrior draining a cup in a single draw, and she lived and her life bloomed in her like the sun rising on the day of a feast, and she feared Calicut and Purikit no more. And the people are no longer afraid of using the word for Purikit's poison, for whenever it inflames them they have only to touch their foreheads to the cool face of Calicut's gift to be cleansed. <laughs>